You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, and it's so good to be with you here today. If you will, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. Again, that is John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. And today we're going to be looking at a message entitled, The Final Sermon. Over the course of history, there have been some very famous farewell speeches. Uh, You probably know what I'm talking about, right? These speeches are generally the last public address of a very public figure. Some of the most famous farewell speeches in U.S. history include the 1796 farewell address of George Washington. Uh, Every so often it makes its way through uh, the rounds on social media and and people share it talking about, again, this uh, amazing speech that Washington gave in terms of political unity and the things that our country needed to do if it was going to survive. Other ones include Robert E. Lee's farewell address to the Army of Virginia And General MacArthur's address to Congress where he famously said, Old soldiers never die, they only fade away. These speeches are unique, they're memorable, they're powerful, because they are the words that a public figure gives again to the broader public, and usually these speeches contain key points that they desire for people to remember. It contains the focal points of their career, and it includes what that person sees as the most important things For the people to remember. Now naturally, we know from scripture that the Great Commission is truly Jesus' farewell address to his disciples. And through the word, it is uh, his farewell address to his church as well. In the sense of this being his last and, and final commandment and commission given to us. But what we see in today's text is that we're going to be looking at what is called Jesus' final sermon. This was Jesus' final time addressing the Jews in a sermon format before going to the cross. And so we should take a very close look at the themes that we see here. And so today we are going to look at Jesus' final sermon. Again, in John 12, 44 through 50. I'll be reading from the ESV, but you follow along in your translation. It says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear God in heaven, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you so much for your great grace and mercy to us. Father, we thank you so much for your word, but Lord, we recognize that it is containing, again, everything we need to be perfect and equipped and complete to do your will. Lord, we recognize, though we may not do that will perfectly, that Lord, we should strive to be believers who please you, who honor you and glorify you in all that we do and say. 
And so, Lord, we pray that today through looking at your word that you would equip us, you would challenge us, you would convict us, that we may do just that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would move me out of the way today and use me as a messenger to proclaim your message to your people. Father, we ask again that everything we do and say here today would be for your honor and your glory. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Over the last few weeks, we have been, again, looking at this point in Jesus' ministry where now he is in the last week of his earthly ministry before the cross. And we have seen, again, uh, just a few weeks back, that the Greeks came to Jesus, and we saw him explain that the gospel was not just for the Jews only, but for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He taught them the purpose and power of the cross. He came to save his people, and on the cross he not only paid the price for the sins of his people, but the devil was cast out and defeated, and the world was put under judgment. Last week, we saw that many people rejected this message, the gospel message, because they had hardened hearts, they feared man rather than God, and they loved the glory that came from man rather than living for the glory of God. And so that's where we left off last time, right? People did not believe because, again, this hardness of heart, fear of man, and loving the glory of man. And Jesus' response to this unbelief with a final short sermon. And that is the passage that we are looking at together today. As we initially approach this text, we see that Jesus cried out, right? That's how this begins. Jesus cried out. Now, we need to remember that this is not uh, Jesus crying in the sense of tears and boohooing, right? Some people have looked at this and they think, well, you know, oh, maybe Jesus is, is just crying out here because he is uh, so pained over these people turning away. That's not what the language is indicating here. Rather, this is not tears and boohooing, but this is an emphatic shout. Right? In fact, the word that's used here in the Greek, the original word that John wrote this in, was a word that was used to refer to the call of a raven or the croak of a frog. But it was also used, such as in this text, to refer to public teaching. And so basically what is happening here and what this is saying is that Jesus is teaching in a loud voice. He is projecting now, anyone who does any sort of public speaking, and then uh, especially the teachers who are here in the group with us today, you know what the word projecting means, right? It's making your voice loud so that it will be heard. It's this idea of, again, making sure that what you're saying is being heard by the crowd. The reason I'm taking a minute to talk about this is because this is a key word that shows us that this is not just a, a private teaching It's not just a quiet conversation. This was a sermon. This was a public address. And again, this is the last such one of those that we find in John's gospel. And so using that theme of final, I want to show you three main themes in this six-verse sermon. And uh, we will spend our time this morning surveying those. The first one is that Jesus in this final sermon makes what I'll call the final appeal in verses 44 through 46. The final appeal. Now, verses 44 and 45, they deal with the first part of this. Now, uh, Jesus here is saying, again, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Jesus is making it clear that rejecting him also means rejecting the Father. You see, if you believe in Christ, he says you are truly believing in the Father who sent him. 
Whoever sees Jesus has seen the Father who sent him. This is the same truth that Paul teaches in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If anyone has seen him, they have seen the Father. And so Jesus was making it clear. The appeal here is not just to believe in Jesus the man. That's what's being said. It's not just to believe in Jesus as a man who walked around doing things, but rather this is a call, an appeal to believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in the context here of these people walking away because they are hardened or they fear man and they're afraid of being put out of the synagogue or they just love the glory of man and what people uh, boost their ego. Jesus is saying that rejecting him is truly a rejection of God the Father. Which would have been a big deal to the Jews in attendance. Especially because Jesus' statement here, it tells them that the way to truly worship and to follow the Father is not to sacrifice in the temple, it's not to follow the law, it's not the way of the Pharisee, but rather it is to follow Christ. And so the, the first main part of the appeal here is to follow Christ. It's not new to us, but still this is the fundamental aspect of what we believe, that we must follow Christ. Now in verse 46, we see the second part of this final appeal, which says not only do we need to believe in Christ, but Jesus gives us a picture of what that looks like. Verse 46, he says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Whoever believes in Jesus does not abide in darkness. Now, the ESV, it says may not remain. If you're reading a King James or a New King James, it says abide. But the meaning is absolutely the same thing. The original word that John wrote in Greek, again, it carries this idea of staying power. So remaining, abiding, enduring, this is the sense of the word. And basically, Jesus is saying you cannot stay. You, as a believer in him, cannot live in darkness. Whoever follows Christ does not stay or abide or endure or live in darkness. Instead, we follow the light. We follow Christ. And that means living in light of the fact that we are called out of darkness. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, the people who belong to Christ are a people called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of his grace. And and here Peter says we are to proclaim his excellencies. Interestingly, Peter here, he connects proclaiming or sharing the gospel with being called out of darkness and experiencing the glorious, marvelous light of Christ. And so it stands to reason that those who are not called out of darkness have nothing to say. And again, maybe this is the reason that we are not as active as we should be in evangelism because some of you may be claiming the name of Christ while still living in utter darkness. You see, we cannot follow if we are sitting down. And some of you, if we take your word, if we take you at your word of being saved, took one step toward the light and then plopped down and took a seat in the darkness never to move again unless something changes. We cannot say we don't live in darkness if we spend all of our time there. 
And so many of us, again, we claim to follow Christ. We claim to have been called out of this darkness, and yet we spend the majority of our life and our time and our energy in sin and darkness. And we cannot say, again, we are now in the marvelous light of Christ's grace if we have never moved out of the darkness. Again, this is not to say that we must be perfect because we can't be. But it is to say that the Bible is clear that we are to repent of our sins. It's clear that if we believe in Christ, we will be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit and we will grow in Christ-likeness. So Jesus says, believe in me, the God of the Bible. And he also says, belief in me means you will no longer remain in darkness. And so the application is that if you've never left the darkness, you need to put your trust in Christ and follow him, and he will call you from darkness into marvelous light. But if you're claiming to be a believer, don't run back into the darkness. Don't go back to the darkness. Don't be like the Israelites that were freed from slavery to Egypt and wanted to go back. Believers don't live in darkness, and you cannot grow in darkness either. You know, there's no true plants that can grow in darkness. There are plenty of plants that uh, grow in shade, right? They grow in low light. That's not the absence of light. But darkness truly is the absence of light. And there are no real things classified as plants that grow in darkness. The only thing botanists say that grow in the dark are molds and fungus. Because they feed on decay rather than through photosynthesis, which needs the light. The lesson from nature here is that only dead things and things that eat dead things can grow in the dark. If you are a believer, you are like a plant. We need the light, and we must grow toward it. The same intensity, again, of those plants, who we know that if you sit them on a windowsill, they grow toward the light. We, as believers need the light to grow. And so if you're sitting in darkness, not only uh, would we question whether or not we have truly, you truly believed in Christ, if you have, then you are completely stunting your growth. This is the final appeal. Believe in the God of the Bible and don't remain in darkness. Secondly, though, Jesus moves on. He not only talks about the necessity of belief in him, but he also talks about judgment. Specifically, we see the final standard of judgment in verses 47 through 48. And everybody loves verse 47 as long as they don't read verse 48. Right? If you rip verse 47, as my professors used to say, kicking and screaming out of context, it sounds like we can all just do whatever we want. That's not the case. Verse 48 explains it. But, but here in verse 47, Jesus says that if anyone does not keep my word... I don't judge him. Man, that sounds great, right? Sounds like a free-for-all. Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And, and if we just look at that, we might get some wrong implications and understandings of, of what is going on here. This is why context is so important, and carefully reading the text is key. Because it sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm just here to save, and there's no judgment whether we follow him or not. And that's where atheists and pagans and heathens will often take this verse and make it say, well, you know, Jesus is not judging me. Jesus is not saying that. 
He is saying here in this passage that his purpose in coming was not judgment, but to go to the cross to pay the price for our sins. But rest assured, and verse 48 confirms this, Jesus is not denying that there will be judgment. He's simply saying that when he came the first time, he was there to secure the salvation of his people, not in judgment. In fact, here's the beautiful thing about it. If Jesus was coming in judgment, he wouldn't have need to come at all. If he's only coming to judge, he didn't need to humble himself to the form of man and, and come and, and walk around on this earth and endure the cross. If his whole purpose was just to judge, he could have done that from heaven where he sees all and knows all. And he could hand down a holy and just punishment. But he's saying, I came to secure the salvation of my people, not in judgment. But verse 48 tells us that the one who rejects Christ, the one who rejects the teaching of the Bible, does have a judge. Jesus says, the word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus is saying there will definitely be a judgment. And you know what the standard of that judgment will be? It's the Bible. The word that he has spoken will judge them on the last day. And this is so important. Many of us here today, we've been in church for years. Many of you have been Christians longer than some of us have been alive. And so you say, well, of course we know that there will be a judgment. What's so important about this is that the standard of judgment that will be used has massive implications. You know, I made that joke all the time about how only judge can, oh gosh, about how only God can judge me is actually really scary. Because the God who sees all and knows all judging you is a scary thought. But what's so scary about that is that we will not be judged on the basis of what other people think about us. The Lord's not going to judge us on the basis of what our friends think about us, of what people on the internet think about us, or what your preacher thinks about you, or what your mama thinks about you. You're judged on the basis of Scripture. Have you kept the Word of God or not? And again, we, we, we claim to know this, but then what comes into play is when we're dealing with people who we know aren't doing it, and especially as a pastor, I see this all the time at funerals. As it doesn't matter if we all gather at your funeral and say, well, he was, he was a good guy. Or she was such a nice lady. I mean, that happens all the time at funerals, and it sounds nice, but it doesn't matter in terms of the judgment of God. What matters is, did we keep the word or not? And here's the thing about it. The answer is clearly Not. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. None are righteous. No, not one, the Bible tells us. So the judgment is, is cut and dry and clear. If you are being judged on the basis of how you lived up to God's holy word, you are guilty and condemned. And we see here that that is the case. It wasn't rigged against you. You're truly guilty. The only way we are saved from that condemnation is if we are covered by the grace of Christ who died to take the punishment for that sin and then he gives us his righteousness so we can be made right with God. When we believe in Christ and repent of sin by his grace, we are saved. And the standard of scripture is met by Christ in our place. 
For believers, the judgment will not be to determine whether or not we spend eternity with Christ or eternity in hell. The judgment determines reward. But as believers, we must live according to God's word. In fact, in Matthew 4.4, Jesus says, he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As believers, we are still held to the standard of living by God's word. So remember, people can think you are the best person ever. But if your sins have not been covered by the blood of Christ, then it matters not. And by the same token, people can dog cuss you and hate you and say you're the worst person ever. And if you've placed faith in Christ and repented of sin, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we need to be careful to remember that the Bible, the Word of God, is the standard by which every part of our life will be judged. Our marriages, how we raise our children, how we handle our money, how we treat others, every aspect of our life is evaluated by what the Word tells us to do. And that's the standard of our judgment. And so it must be the standard by which we live. Finally, here in this final sermon, we see that God is the final authority on all things. Verses 49 through 50. God is the final authority. Now, authority is a word we talk about a lot, but sometimes we we wonder what it's really getting at. And uh, R.C. Sproul, he, he said it very uh, poetically in this way. He said, the very word authority has within it the word author. An author is someone who creates and possesses a particular work. And so insofar as God is the foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he is the author and the owner of his creation. He is the foundation upon which all other authority stands or falls. Because God is the author and creator of all things, he owns it and exercises absolute authority over it. In this text, we see that even for Jesus, the Father is the final authority over all things. Now this is true down to what Jesus said and did. He says here very clearly what to say and what to speak. It had been given to him by the Father. And so what he says, therefore, he says as the Father has told him. He does as the Father says, and he knows that the Father's command is eternal life. You see, the Father commanded Christ to come and die on the cross for man's sin, and Christ is following that, knowing that it leads to eternal life. God is the supreme authority in all things. Not just spiritual things, but everything down to how we act and and even how we talk. I think today that many of us have lost this mindset of the Lord as our final authority. Specifically living in the time in which we do and the place in which we do. Many of us don't have a good understanding of authority at all. Most of us walk around thinking that we are the authority and that we determine everything. Right, So many of us think of God as one of many things vying for our attention. We tend to treat God like he's a lobbyist. right? Just one lobbyist out of many. And, and he's trying to convince us and coerce us to do what he thinks we should do. But there's plenty of other things out here in the world trying to tell us what we need to do as well. This is the old uh, angel and devil on the shoulders thing that used to show up in cartoons. You remember in the cartoon someone is faced with a decision... 
And there's a, a clear right path and a clear wrong path. And they're trying to reason through it. And all of a sudden, and a little angel pops up on one shoulder and a little devil pops up on the other shoulder. They're, they're both there. And usually in the show, what happens is the character is given both of them equal attention. Right? I'm going to hear out what the devil says, and then I'm going to listen to the angel. And then the devil says something else, and then the angel says something else. And so the character is, is struggling in this moment. It's utterly ridiculous. This image, this idea, and again, many of us think this way. It makes you the authority. And God is, again, just, he's just a lobbyist. He's a little angel on your shoulder trying to coerce you or convince you to do what he wants. Listen, God is God. He doesn't beg or grovel. He's authoritative, and he has given his command. And so what we need to realize is that people, and specifically with a healthy understanding of authority, we are not involved in the decision-making process. We don't get to say, well, God, you know, I think that you ought to do this. Right? Or, or this is what I think. And this. No, God's the authority. We are to submit. That's what Christ did. He did it in the garden. And he did it here. He says that every word was under the authority of God. May we do the same. May everything we do and say be under the authority of God. We need to remember that God's opinion of you, again, is the only one that matters. So God's the authority, and, and what is so good about God's authority is that he is clear about what he has authoritatively said. He's given us his authoritative words so we know how we need to live. This is not, uh, you know, God told me, or I just feel like, but this is, it is written. This is what the scripture says. God's the final authority in every area, and he's authoritatively told us what to do in his word, which is perfect to make us complete in him. Now, authority, again, is very important because uh, if we don't view God authoritatively, then we can just take what he says as a suggestion. And that leads to massive problems. For instance, John MacArthur talks about the necessity of a church being submitted to God's authority through his word. When the word of God is not set up as the supreme authority, division is inevitable. Such happens even in evangelical churches when pastors and other leaders begin substituting their own ideas for the truths of Scripture. The substitution is seldom intentional, but it will always happen when the Bible is neglected. A Bible that is not studied carefully cannot be followed carefully, and where it is not followed, there will be division because there will be no common ground for beliefs and practices. When the truth of Scripture is not the sole authority, men's varied opinions become the authority. It's so important for us as a church to be sure that we are under the authority of God by submitting to the authority of His Word, just as Christ did. Because if all of us are following our own authorities, right, then our ideas of what the church should be and how we get there, they're going to be vastly different. If you are the authority, right, then your opinions dictate what the church should be. If you are the authority, then whatever pleases you in worship is what you're going to pursue. But if God is the authority and we all submit to his word, then we will all see that scripture clearly tells us what kind of church we are to be and how we are to get there. And Christ has shown us how to do this. We're obedient no matter what. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says this, 
Speaking of Christ, it's as though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're to be obedient to God's authoritative word no matter what. Believers, hear me. We must submit to him as Lord and recognize his authority. As we conclude today, I want to make a final appeal myself. And that final appeal is this. We must believe in the Lord Jesus and do everything based on what his word says and submit to the authority of God. We are not to remain in darkness. So believer, leave the things of the world behind and fully submit to and follow Christ. But if you are here today and you have not yet tasted the marvelous light of God's grace, then we urge you to throw yourself on his mercy and follow Christ today. Because we recognize that we may never know when our final moments will come along. But we know here the words of Christ's final sermon. And may we put them into action. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you so much for your tremendous grace and mercy to us. Father, we thank you for the fact that uh, we can be saved by your grace. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And Lord, we pray that we would truly proclaim your excellencies, both now in how we worship and how we act and live when we leave And Lord, in the conversations we have with others, may we point them to your greatness and your majesty. So Father, today we ask in this place that you would have your way. Lord, your will would be done. You would call those who are still in darkness to light. And Lord, you would help believers to be sanctified and grow in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.